Welcome to the PEDSNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. As always, I'm your dedicated host, Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America. And the goal of this podcast is to give you an updated, easy to digest form of evidence-based practice that you can listen to anywhere that supplements your understanding of current practice issues. I'm gonna push your understanding of one of the most common pediatric respiratory diagnoses past the basics of primary care to the emergency department, inpatient setting, and ICU by referencing some of the most recent publications that support our practice. In a primary care or urgent care setting, much of your role as a clinician is to recognize the disease, assess the severity of illness, and disposition to either home with appropriate management and anticipatory guidance for the family, or refer to an acute care setting if the child is having difficulty breathing, which is a far more complicated process in its medical decision-making. So today we're gonna think about respiratory distress in the pediatric patient who presents with bronchiolitis. You've no doubt had some basic lectures on bronchiolitis, but this episode is going to cover advanced management and the most current up-to-date evidence from the literature that has been published since the last set of guidelines in 2014. Let's get started. To review bronchiolitis, it's a viral lower respiratory infection that occurs in children under two years of age and is most commonly caused by RSV, although lots of other viruses can be implicated. Adenovirus, human metanumovirus, influenza, parainfluenza, and even COVID. The major pathophysiologic complication of bronchiolitis is that the lower airways become obstructed with edema and inflammation, as well as copious mucus production. Now, remember from your lecture on airway physiology that in VQ mismatch, when ventilation and perfusion become uneven, say when the bronchioles are obstructed with inflammation and mucus, this can result in hypoxia, and the patient may present with tachypnea to increase their minute ventilation, tachycardia to try to overcome hypoxia, and increased work of breathing to overcome the obstruction. You should have read the AAP guidelines on bronchiolitis published in 2014 by now, and you know that children who do not have a severe work of breathing have oxygen sats that are greater than 90% on room air and who are feeding at least 50% of their liquid intake can be discharged home with supportive care. We want to promote suctioning and hydration while avoiding albuterol, racemic epinephrine, chest physical therapy, antibiotics, and steroids. But that doesn't help you with decision-making on a child with distress, does it? Let's travel from the ED to the ICU with this patient. Diagnosis is most likely through clinical exam, but for some patients with high-risk history, such as a young age, generally less than four weeks, a history of prematurity, or other kinds of systemic comorbidity, such as chronic lung disease, congenital heart disease, etc., you might obtain other testing, such as a rapid antigen test for RSV, a respiratory virus PCR panel, or even a chest x-ray if the presentation is atypical. Most of the time, there's very little evidence to support a chest x-ray. A blood gas could also be warranted in some cases for impending respiratory failure, but it doesn't serve most moderate cases. Simultaneously, your goal of management is to restore adequate oxygenation and ventilation. We first do this by going back to our ABCs and removing any obstruction from the airway. When I'm leading the healthcare team and a nurse or paramedic calls me into the room for a child in respiratory distress, these patients with bronchiolitis can be so tight and wheezy. 
And they almost always ask, can I please start some albuterol? And my first response is always, let's start with a good nasopharyngeal suction with lots of saline. You can use a large catheter like an 8 French or a nasal suction aspirator with a neosucker tip that goes deeper into the nair or a mushroom or olive tip that sits right at the tip of the nair and creates an occlusive suction. So when suction and oxygen therapy don't work to resolve hypoxia or distress, we move on to additional support. But there's much controversy in the literature about what works best, and I want you to stay on top of the current evidence-based literature to guide your practice because as soon as you finish listening to this podcast, something new will be published. Let's talk about a lot of the common treatments. There's been a lot of controversy about whether to use intermittent or continuous pulse ox to determine care for patients with bronchiolitis. In the emergency department, we used to suction a baby, allow them to fall asleep, and wait to see if they would dip into the 80s while they slept. If they stayed above 90%, they went home. But if they dropped down even to just 89% during sleep, then they got admitted for oxygen therapy. If you're thinking about the big picture, Rates of hospitalization of children with bronchiolitis are going up, while mortality rates are staying the same, which means that we are lowering our threshold for admitting patients. We know that management decisions that are based primarily on oxygen saturations are more likely to increase healthcare costs without altering other outcomes for patients. A 2021 multi-center randomized controlled trial on hospitalized patients with bronchiolitis supported the use of intermittent pulse ox monitoring because clinical outcomes of safety and length of stay were the same, whether continuous or intermittent pulse ox was used. But the big difference was nursing satisfaction. And it makes sense that a nurse would prefer intermittent monitoring because think about that toddler that pulls the pulse ox off his finger every five minutes and the monitor beeps and screams at you, but you were in the other room doing a dressing change and you were busy and we've all been there. Those kinds of issues can have downstream effects on the efficiency of a nurse's day and the entire unit. How much easier is it to use less invasive monitoring when the end result is the same? So score one for the nurses. The recommendation on hypertonic saline in the AAP guidelines is ambivalent. While it won't harm the patient, it can be laborious for staff. Using nebulized hypertonic saline with or without epinephrine is only associated with a one-day decrease in length of stay for admitted patients. So there's no value in using it in the emergency department, and you're more likely to see institutional variation on the practice. Next, let's talk about high-flow nasal cannula. This is a very popular next step in bronchiolitis care for patients with increased work of breathing who do not respond to initial supportive care measures because of its good tolerance and simplicity of its use. High-flow nasal cannula refers to the delivery of oxygen or blended air at flow rates greater than 2 liters per minute, which is greater than inspiratory demand. The mechanism of action is related to humidification and gas conditioning, which results in small airway pressure distension that results in improved gas exchange, applies positive pressure, flushes anatomical dead space, and decreases work of breathing. As compared with non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula is simpler to set up. There's no synchronization, it uses a single interface, and there are only two settings. 
So at the different settings, depending on your oxygen and flow rates, you can essentially give humidified oxygen delivery at low flow rates that's more like a nasal cannula versus more of a CPAP effect at higher flow rates, which makes it a one-stop shop for treatment support that's more comfortable and better tolerated than nasal CPAP. Another nice thing is that it can be used in various clinical settings, like the emergency department, inner hospital transport, or the ICU, with varying degrees of support. A scathing 2020 article by Lenar and Ralston in Pediatrics spoke of high-flow nasal cannula as an intervention that has no evidence to support it and is plagued by practice variation between institutions. Leonar and Ralston point out that in a consortium of pediatric hospitals in the U.S. and Canada, 48% of hospitals use high-flow nasal cannula for treatment of bronchiolitis in infants, yet 32% of hospitals do not have criteria for starting high-flow, 43% do not have criteria for ending it, and less than 25% have guidelines for nutrition while on high-flow. Furthermore, it remained unclear whether hospitals were using the therapy as a frontline treatment versus rescue therapy after the traditional measures did not work. There were three recent systematic reviews on the use of high-flow nasal cannula outside of the ICU setting that all reached similar conclusions. High-flow nasal cannula is a safe rescue therapy for infants who have failed standard oxygen therapy but its use as a first-line therapy is not supported by the evidence. Beyond clinical utility, equipment costs for high-flow nasal cannula have been estimated to be 16 times higher than those of standard oxygen therapy, which the authors argue make early use of this therapy challenging to justify. But I'll play devil's advocate here and ask whether it's actually less expensive if you're using it on the floor than having the patient go to the ICU, thus making it a value type intervention if I implemented it on the wards compared to the ICU. The authors didn't address this. I'll say that I found lots of conflicting evidence surrounding the issue of efficacy, cost, and outcomes as I was researching this podcast especially from an ICU perspective. But once a child is in intensive care, the use of nasal CPAP, BiPAP, NIV, and high-flow nasal cannula has a lot of support as inexpensive and effective treatments that avoid intubation, which we obviously want to avoid if possible. One study by Coletti and All in 2017 reported their institution's use of high-flow nasal cannula as the first-line therapy for various diseases asthma, bronchiolitis, pneumonia, and this was for all age groups. The failure rate was low. 5.6% of the children required NIV and 4.5% required intubation, which is similar to that seen in other previous studies. If you think back on the pattern of how research becomes practice, then you'll see where we're going with high flow. Our national authorities write clinical practice guidelines on the recommended management based on the most current research, and we take on their recs as our medical decision-making compass. But in the last guidelines, the AAP said that there was no high-quality randomized controlled trial to support high flow, so they couldn't make specific recommendations. In turn, there became widespread implementation of local clinical protocols but with a paucity of support on certain topics. 
and certainly no consistency in how it was used. So now we see widespread variation for an expensive therapy that leaves us wondering if it has any impact on hospitalization for bronchiolitis, with many calling for emergency departments and inpatient teams to discontinue its routine use. This way of the dodo is common. We've seen it in bronchiolitis before, with albuterol, steroids, racemic epi, and others. First, there's widespread adoption of a practice. Then scientists accumulate evidence indicating its ineffectiveness. Clinical practice guidelines get revised, recommending against the use of that practice. And then there's therapy de-implementation. I think this is where we could see high-flow nasal cannula going in the next decade. But for any of you who've ever seen a provider give a trial of albuterol in a bronchiolytic before, you know that it's pretty hard to put the snakes back in the can. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the PZNP, where I try to bring national guidelines to life alongside current evidence in the literature. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this episode or any of the PZNP. You can see show notes and references to this episode and all of my prior episodes at www.thepedsnp.com. I'd love to hear from you on any questions or comments you have, so feel free to email me at thepeedsnp at gmail.com. And remember when you're digging through the literature on the current evidence-based practice that you're doing this for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.